Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, our guest is Khaloud Kher. She runs a think tank in Khartoum called Insight Strategy Partners, and she's here today to discuss the political situation amid the standoff in Sudan. Just to note, we recorded this episode a few weeks ago. Khaloud, uh, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. So I I wanted to start things off, first of all, just with a sort of description of the situation from you at this moment. Of course, there was the military coup that sort of dissolved what was this power sharing arrangement. And at the moment, it seems like a total impasse, at least, you know, with the military on one side, and then, of course, a lot of actors in the middle and the street on the other side, the protesters who want the military to, to step down. Is that... Is that basically right? Can you go into a bit more detail on on just what the situation is right now? You're absolutely right. There is a political impasse uh, at the moment, but this impasse has been going on for a few months at least, even before the coup, because we saw different parts of the civilian bloc not sort of able to reconcile a lot of their priorities for the transition. Part of that is uh, sort of a function of the way the transition was created, was uh, structured. But part of that was also manipulations by the generals, the sort of the, those who would, would be the coup leaders later on, to create those divisions within the civilian bloc. Because historically in Sudan, every transition has faltered on the level to which the civilians have been able to cohesively build political vision after sort of coming together to unseat a dictator. And the military know this, of course. Uh, So they used uh, divisions between the armed groups faction within the broader political umbrella and the traditional political parties, which is, you know, quite a natural thing during transition that these groups would sort of compete with each other uh, for a political vision. But the military had its own sort of calculus related to how they wanted to evade They thought accountability for transitional justice, economic accountability and security sector reform through a takeover, in this case through a coup. Just to go in a bit more detail, what's what's important to understand about the divisions with this Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC, that originally signed this deal with the military in 2019? What's important to understand about the situation now in terms of the divisions within that group that arose uh, since 2019? The divisions within the civilian bloc, so within particularly the FFC, because, of course, the civilian bloc is a very broad array of actors. You have uh, the FFC, the Forces for Freedom and Change. You have the Sudan Professionals Association, which is sort of an overarching uh, structure um, that has different unions and professional associations within it. And then you have the resistance committees in the more sort of street-level mobilization movement. Within the FFC, which is made up of political elites, and then later on, after the signing of the Jibba Peace Agreement in October of 2020, it brought in these rebels who used to, you know, fight the central government under Bashir, drawn from Blue Nile and mostly from Darfur. Uh, And the peace agreement was effectively an agreement of the weakest rebel groups, those who couldn't sustain a campaign against Khartoum. So once they were brought into the fold, they, of course, had very different approaches to doing politics, traditional political parties. And that wasn't necessarily a deal breaker. Of course, they were going to have very different visions, very different methodologies uh, for doing politics. Um, You know, the, the rebels sort of come out of a strong history of doing politics through peace agreements. Uh, The political parties come from a strong tradition of doing politics through um, sort of 
the pen, you know, writing statements um, and, and the politics of sort of agreements. So there was always going to be some kind of disagreements about how to approach the, uh, the politics of the transition. What I think we're seeing now, which is very significant, is that since the coup on the 25th of October, the FFC writ large, specifically the political parties faction, has been effectively erased from the political landscape. And one of the reasons for this is that after the coup happened, the international community made the choice to pressure the generals to return the prime minister who was chosen by the FFC. They didn't go for the institutional choice of of choosing to support the FFC and the return to the FFC. They very much individualized the civilian bloc into the personage of Prime Minister Hamdok. And that sort of was a, a key catalyst for the FFC being almost completely withdrawn from Sudanese politics after the coup. And since then, they've been trying to gain some of that ground. But effectively, they, that created a vacuum within the civilian uh, sphere, which the resistance committees have since uh, attempted to fill with some, uh, with, with some great success. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to talk about the deal that Prime Minister Abdullah Homdok uh, struck with the military in November and then his more recent resignation, which you mentioned. But but just before we get there, I think there's a lot of focus, obviously, on what the military has uh, been doing. And of course, there's a number of actors on, on that equation, so they're not quite a cohesive group. Um, but I think there's less focus on what, you know, the street, what the protest movement, what they've been doing since 2019, since basically toppling Omar al-Bashir with a with a street revolution. So, so what's gone on on that side of the equation now that they're really flexing their muscles as well? Help us explain sort of what's happened since 2019, when in many ways they kind of weren't ready to negotiate politically on their own back then. Since, 20, since 2019 and, and the sort of agreement for the power sharing agreement between the civilians and the militaries was established, FFC has, you know, fractured different parties left at different times for different reasons. Um, Some parties were skeptical of the FFC setup and the power sharing agreement with the military in the first place, um, such as the Communist Party, a position they still maintain. And the SPA also fractured into two distinct bodies. Sorry, just to just interject, that's the uh, the Sudanese professional associations. It is, yes. But the resistance committees have by and large remained whole. And that's because they're core demands for freedom, peace and justice, which were sort of a very quick way to rally people against the Bashir regime, has evolved now into other positions. So, for example, they have the three no's position. They don't want to negotiate with the military. They don't want to partner with the military, having seen the result of the 2019 power sharing agreement, which, of course, led us to the coup and the political impasse we have now. And they also don't want to legitimize um, the military in any way. So entering into, you know, political processes with them, signing agreements with them, etc. And that position, what they don't want to do, has been by and large the main characteristic of the resistance committees. But since the FFC was, you know, sort of erased from the political landscape, as I said before, with the coup, they have had to respond and shift and adapt the ways in which they work from a mobilizing entity to a much more overtly political entity. And, you know, this is not something they were necessarily set up to do, but that that flexibility in the way that they work and, and the way that they've constantly been evolving 
since 2013 has allowed them now to be able to respond to to the political vacuum it's effectively left by the, um, the sort of the weakening of the FFC and of course now the resignation of the Prime Minister although the latter is sort of um, less consequential to the greater uh, movement led by the resistance committees so what we're seeing now is that they are putting together a political roadmap um, which they hope to announce um, later on this month and what's really interesting about this political roadmap versus, for example, those um, roadmaps that have been publicized and brought out by political parties, is that the one that is currently under development by the resistance committees is embedding consensus and coalition building within the document, within the way that the document is drafted, before it is announced. The, The Umar party, for example, one of the biggest parties in the country, hasn't done that. They've had a sort of very elite exercise in putting together this roadmap and have um, announced it, I think, a week and a half ago. Um, What that has meant is that the way in which it has been created has now left it pretty much um, a dead document. No one really sort of buys into this. No one has um, taken this political roadmap forward, even arguably within the party itself, which, of course, is very divided. So seeing all of this, you know, the best sort of... um, chance, I think, that this revolution, and make no mistake, we are back to a state of revolution. I mean, the 2019 transition is effectively dead. Um, The coup made sure of that. Um, And so we are back very much in Sudan to a revolution setting. And this revolution has been the very best chance it has to succeed right now looks like what these resistance committees will bring out because they are making sure that every part of Sudan is involved in the drafting and review process of this document. Just quickly, for people who have not been watching, you know, Sudan maybe as closely, I think the major events, um, or even for those who have been watching closely, the major events, you know, would be the coup in October, and then this deal that Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok signed to basically get himself released from detention and reinstated as uh, Prime Minister, and then his resignation in early January uh, just just recently. Why do you think Hamdok did agree to sign that deal, and then and then why did he resign? His stated reasons for signing the deal, which was an objectively very weak deal, it was 14 points um, without much detail, but that very clearly also entrenched the, the, the coup and gave it some kind of legal basis, effectively codifying the coup. But his reasons for signing were that he wanted to stop the bloodshed and he wanted to make sure that the the gains of the past two years, he's, he's speaking specifically about economic gains, as well as some of the political freedoms that were enshrined. He wanted to make sure that those were not squandered. But what he very quickly found was that any deal, of course, that enables the military to sort of be legitimized, he found that he had very little executive space. He couldn't decide. But by the time the deal was concluded, it was obviously too late for him to get them on board. And and they found it very politically expedient to reject the deal because they sort of saw that, by and large, it, first of all, it was a very controversial deal. But the, the political actors that mattered most, in other words, the resistance committees, vehemently rejected the deal. They saw it as legitimizing the military. So with this in- decreased executive space, the prime minister very quickly found that he couldn't choose his own cabinet. He couldn't decide even the nature of the cabinet, whether it would be a fully technocratic board, as decided by the agreement itself, or whether he would have to retain 
elements of the um, the signatories of the peace agreement who, of course, supported the coup. So all of a sudden he'd have to, you know, be back in a sort of cabinet meeting with the very people who uh, allowed the military or gave, gave the military the pretext to undertake the coup in the first place. And of course, he realized very quickly that that wouldn't lead to the transformative agenda that I think he still felt he could uh, see through. Of course, because the political parties didn't back him, he found it increasingly more and more difficult to get people on side. And of course, protests did not stop. And people by and large, you know, in the streets, we saw very large protests at that time, made it very clear that they were not in favor of the the deal itself, but also the setup that would then ensue. The military thought, because they had been led to believe, that simply returning the prime minister to post was going to suddenly bring back all that funding that had been stopped by, of course, the coup, um, but not just funding, and uh, also, you know, grant support, budgetary support, debt relief through the high indebted poor countries HIPIC initiative. Of course, none of that has come back. So, you know, on both sides of this thing, the agreement did not do what, what they thought that it would. So a group that's less talked about is, of course, those who, who used to be in power very much during the Bashir era, the old sort of Islamist parties and and power actors. What's happened to them? It appears that they were biding their time. During the transition, the two-year transition period, there, there was meant to be um, very concerted efforts to make sure that the, the Islamist party, the National Congress party, wouldn't retain the power and influence and the patronage networks that it had. Politically, the party was banned, but it wasn't disbanded um, any more sort of uh, meaningfully than that. Economically, because of course the Bashir project was a financial as well as political project, financially there was a dismantling committee that was set up with the revolution, with the new government, that would try to dismantle that patronage networks of the Islamists. There was some limited success there, but by and large, a lot of Islamists and, Isl- and supporters of the Islamist regime are very much um, sort of around and they still very much have um, their possessions, their assets, uh, their financial flows. What that has meant now is that because Burhan doesn't have a civilian constituency to tap into, he is very much tapping into that old Islamist political group. And what that has meant is that we're seeing a lot of political um consolidation of the Islamic regime happening now. I mean, with the coup, the Islamists quite clearly had a a plan in mind, um, which I don't think really emanates from uh, the generals. It It does seem to be very much a political project. Key individuals, key officials within the legal institutions, such as the chief justice, as well as within the security institutions, such as the heads of military intelligence and the general intelligence services, have now been Um, sort of appointed, uh, and those people are well-established Islamists. We're seeing this kind of return to uh, Bashir-era Sudan. And I think part of the reason for that is that the the narrative, the overarching narrative around the coup, and and even before, was this idea within the political class of returning to a a sort of heyday. Of course, with the political parties, that heyday is, is very different to the Islamists. But I think within the 
sort of more established and older generations of, of political actors in Sudan, there is a lack of imagination about imagining a new political reality, which is very different from the resistance committees who are trying to do that. Mm. So we have the old regime coming back um, in a classic counter-revolution is, is what it sounds like. So a, a lot of the coverage of what's going on in Sudan, a lot of the discussions revolve around what's going in Khartoum. But I want to ask you about how this is playing out, you know, in the rest of Sudan, in the in the peripheries, etc., you know, how are how is this all playing out there? How are they participating? Um, it sounds like a complicated field because you have committees there also participating in the protests, but then you also have these, you know, former rebel groups who are who who signed this peace agreement in 2020 um, and a part of the government have sided with the military. So I hate to throw all this into just one question, but but how should we think about how it's playing out outside Khartoum? I think the overarching uh, sort of takeaway is that it's a very complex picture. I mean, that sounds like a cop-out, but it is. And that's because, you know, Sudan is so big and the political machinations of Khartoum play out very differently in different parts of the country. So, for example, in the east, you have a a sort of a, a conflict based on scarcity and lack of service provision that very much presents itself like ethnic tensions. Whereas in other parts of the country, for example, you have, let's say, Blue Nile, which is a sort of a conflict-affected state. The main rebel group there signed on to the Juba Peace Agreement and its leader, Malik Agar, was made part, a member of the Sovereign Council. Um, so a, a very different sort of stake there for, for, for leaders from Blue Nile. Across the sort of the westwards towards South Kordofan, you have a, a different picture because you have major rebel movement, in fact, one of the strongest rebel movements of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement under Abdel Aziz al-Hilu, who, which didn't sign the peace agreement and is very much outside of the fold of the, the politics of the transition, um, accepting, uh, you know, a few agreements made with Hamdok and and separately with Burhan. Darfur is a different picture altogether um, because, of course, whatever happens in Khartoum has a direct impact on Darfur. There are two main reasons for that. One is that uh, one of the main political and military components of the Darfur conflict, the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, its leader, um, General Hemeti Daglo, is in Khartoum. He's effectively now the most sort of consequential political actor, individual political actor in the country. And any any sort of um, movements, moves and um, decisions he makes in Khartoum will have an effect on Darfur. The second reason is that most of the Juba Peace Agreement signatories who then joined the government are drawn from rebel movements in Darfur. And these are the same rebel movements that not only fought Bashir and his military, but also fought Hemeti and his RSF. And now they're now very much in an uncomfortable securitocratic pact with Hemeti and Burhan to try and further their own causes. You know, this looks like different things for different uh, actors. One, for some of them, it's a case of getting money from the central government to pay their commanders and keep them on side. For others, it is to create the service provision for their constituents in case of Sudan goes into an electoral process pretty soon and they're able to leverage their constituents into um, an electoral uh, body. Of course, what we see immediately is that all of these different actors might have immediate and short-term interests um, that are reconciled with each other and that are um, mutual. But very quickly, um, those interests will diverge and we're already starting to see that with the disintegration of the peace agreement. Uh, It's an agreement that 
mostly relies on uh, financing to make it work so that everyone sort of gets their cut of the pie. Of course, with no financing coming in, with the government uh, leaking money uh, and not being able to create wealth or access international financing, um, that agreement looks very much in jeopardy. Does the political power of the street revolution extend uh, much beyond Khartoum or, or must much beyond sort of central Sudan? It does, yes. What we've seen very interestingly is that in Darfur, as well as in the east, the resistance committees, um, which differ from the overarching political setups there, you know, in the east, it's more sort of a, a native administration type of political setup, which are these bodies created by the, the British under the colonial regime. In Darfur, we see um, it, that it's taking more of a sort of an ethnic face. Um, but within all of that older, more traditional style of political setup, we see that resistance committees are really taking root. Sudan has a demographic dividend right now. It has um, 70% of the country roughly is around is, is under 35 years old and 40% are under 18. So I think the, the resistance committees have been able to show that actually the demands of the country are pretty universal, even if the, the political and conflict contexts differ widely. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so that was <laughs> a very long sort of runway to to now the, the part of the episode I really want to dive into, you know, what could possibly be done moving forward and, and what the future might look like given this political impasse. So, so the United Nations has proposed what sounds like sort of a roundtable attempt to bring all these sort of actors, both military, civilian, former rebel groups together um, and 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 talk, um, partly because of the fracturing of the space that you've seen since 2019 in the in the ways you've described. I'm wondering, though, in your estimation, do any other groups really matter besides the military and armed actors on one side and these resistance committees on the other? Do any of the political parties like UMA, do those ones also matter? Because I think sort of understanding who who actually matters in this equation help sort of clear the picture on the path forward? Yeah, I, I think on the military side, it's very clear to see, you know, who is uh, a member of the armed forces, who is a member of the RSF, and who is a member of, of a rebel group. Certainly in Khartoum, the picture is much more fuzzy outside, especially in, in parts of Darfur. It's much less sort of clear cut on the civilian side. There are members of the resistance committees who also have partisan allegiance. The difference between the political parties and the resistance committees is that the, the methodology they use to enact politics. So the political parties matter because they would be uh, taking forward any uh, any aspects of the agreement when it comes to governance. They would be bringing, you know, seeing through an electoral process. They would be standing for um, electoral seats. They would be, you know, um, coming up with political programs for any government, manifestos, etc. So the political parties still have, very much have a role to play. What they need to do is, is adapt the ways in which they work in order to meet the political realities of the moment, um, because currently they very much seem fossilized in a different political era. Do you think we will see the political parties ever take a position that sort of goes against uh, what these neighborhood committees, these resistance committees are proposing? I think that's sort of a major question uh, outsiders have looking into the situation. I think they did in 2019. Uh, the political parties, I think, um, patronized 
the uh, resistance committees very much in 2019. And when it came time to sit down and have um, to, to negotiate with the military at the time, uh, the resistance committees were very much uh, dismissed um, from that process, both by mediators and by the political parties. Um, of course, in many ways, that is the reason we had the political setup we had over the past two years. The constitutional document was very much about um, setting up structures rather than a transformative change agenda. What is different now in 2022 is that I think that the political parties are understanding that regardless of how this plays out, especially because there's a push towards elections, they will be drawing their constituents from these very same resistance committees. So they do have to make inroads with them. They do have to um, extend their relationships into these resistance committees. What we've seen, though, in practice, is that the Forces for Freedom and Change, which is the umbrella group for political parties, has been very publicly saying that they're reaching out to the resistance committees, that they expect to sign an agreement um, of, of principles, of, of a roadmap, of a way forward with the resistance committees. Um, but speaking to resistance committee members, they've said they, they, have, um, they have not had any in- meaningful engagement with uh, the political party leaderships. Um, there is no sort of agreement in the works. Uh, but I do think that that is something that should be, um, that should take shape. What it will require is for the political parties um, to, rather than tokenize the resistance committees, actually take them on board as partners. And there are many political as well as social um, impediments to them doing that. It will require a, a lot of sort of internal introspection, I think, by the political parties um, about how to make um, their their inroads with the resistance committees meaningful, but also on an equal basis. Mm. Thanks. I I, want to zero back in now on these uh, resistance committees. You said the, you know, the the revolution, we're back in a revolutionary phase. And um, (laughs) for better, for worse, revolutions don't tend to follow clean paths, I think, or lend themselves very well to processes which can (laughs) frustrate diplomats. So, you said the committees are drafting a sort of common position, um, and that will be released um, sometime perhaps in the next weeks, I think, or, or, or months. From your conversations, what do you expect it will say? Um, and I'm assuming they'll sort of maintain this maximalist approach, you know, against the military being involved in politics. I'm just wondering, how does that look to members of the resistance committee in terms of where that ultimately leads? Because I think, again, for, for many on the outside who are trying to come up with a solution to this, it, that demand looks like a dead end in a certain way, because no one can figure out how you would get the military um, with all the power they have and interest they have to, to totally step aside. So how does that look like on, on their end? Well, there are two th- things to this. The one is the process. And the other is the, the the political sort of imagination. On the process side, the, one of the reasons why the, the resistance committees have been so successful in um, sort of resisting the, the military politically and economically is that they're able to effectively bring the country to a standstill. And they're able to do that by themselves and they're able to do that through the reaction of the, of the authorities. What we've seen recently is that, for example, the resistance committees will announce a protest date. Police and then the security apparatus in Sudan would re- would respond by blocking bridges, blocking roads, you know, putting in a lot of effort into these uh, repressive tactics. And then the, the, the protest would be called off at the last minute, sort of expending energies on the regime side. And that's a very clever tactic, but it's also has shown that they are 
adapting their tactics from, you know, strikes and large uh, demonstrations where you see a lot of loss of life, a lot of loss of income to something that is a lot more efficient, if you will, and saves a lot of lives. So that's very much on the process side. But I think the value of the resistance committees to the Sudanese political project at the moment is the on the more sort of conceptual side as well, to enable them to sort of imagine something better, um, this sort of hopefulness to Sudanese politics, which I think given the current political impasse can be quite difficult to see. I think there's a really sort of, from the outside looking in, a gothic overarching um, of sense to Sudanese politics. What this roadmap does is one, indicate this shift from uh, this uh, mobilizing objective to a much, much, much more uh, politically, uh, overtly political position of the resistance committees. But they still maintain that they do not want to become a political party. They are there as sort of a a mass broad-based coalition. I think the resistance committees see that there's actually a great weakness on the on the military side, on the general side. Um, so the, the regime project is very fragile and it is disintegrating. What the resistance committees, are, I think, are reading quite correctly is that as this disintegration happens, they can then look for the leverage points and maintain the momentum of, of the protests and apply pressure that way. Um, the, I think the regime is weaker than I think a lot of diplomats particularly appreciate. And we have to remember that in 2018, 2019, what I was hearing from a lot of diplomats is, you know, these protests are pointless. Bashir will be around. I think they believed in the power of Bashir almost much more than the than the, than the, than the Sudanese themselves. There is a distinct lack of imagination, I think, on the international community side, which is very dangerous, about what Sudanese politics could look like. And conversely, the resistance committees are trying to build that uh, sort of political future. And what we're seeing now, both with the, uh, you know, the mediation process led by the international community, or at least facilitated by the international community, is those two sort of visions coming to a head. I'm just wondering where you think this is heading, given everything that you've said and the and the various actors. And as we started off this sort of talking about that, it does seem like an impasse. How should how should uh, people think about this? Are we, you know, I'm I'm listening to you, and it almost sounds like Sudan's entering a sort of post deal space where, you know, this is a, a deal might not even be possible, and it's sort of the parties pressing, hoping the the other one shatters before they do, uh, uh, so to speak. I mean, is that is that how you see it? Or do you think there's a process that can still uh, lead to a deal? Um, how should people think about this and, you know, and, and, and really what can be done in a situation like this? I think what needs to really sort of crystallize for a lot of um, stakeholders, both internationally and domestically, is that the resistance committees, for example, and their movement. So the resistance committees are part of a coalition of, um, you know, youth groups, women's groups, um, community initiatives, etc. That movement needs to be given sort of center stage in any process, but also in any um, sort of strategic planning moving forward, because they have, by and large, been the most consequential political actor of the past few years. And yet... We are also seeing that in many ways, when it counts, um, they are very much sidelined. 
um, what I think is necessary right now is that regardless of how this pans out, and there are several scenarios, you know, an impasse sort of continuing um, until some kind of elections that would lack credibility take shape. There is also, you know, sort of a breakdown of the secure, securocratic structure, and then therefore some return to a conflict even at the national level or in regionally, particularly in Darfur, there's also, you know, a scenario of mediated processes continuing, but that are also very much susceptible to a capture and and cooptation by the military, very much in in the same way that Bashir used to manipulate uh, processes. Um, So there are very different scenarios that could play out. My sense is that we will get versions of these scenarios at the same time, um, because as, as I said earlier, Sudan is such a broad and, and complicated um, political context that you could see, for example, a return to conflict in Darfur, and we're very much seeing, you know, definitive signs of that with the looting of UN compounds, etc. And at the same time, some kind of um, troubled mediation process in Khartoum that takes in some of the urban centers. And at the same time, the sort of threat of a counter-coup, a counter-coup by the military, hanging in the balance um, and, and sort of in the background. Regardless of how those scenarios play out, the, the, the sort of the mainstay of progress, I think, will have to rely on not just the most consequential body, but the body that is the most adaptive, the most relevant to um, the current politics of the moment. Because in much the same way that the political parties are fossilized in a sort of different era of Sudanese politics, so too with the military. They are arguably the sort of the, the longest standing institution in the country. That is, of course, by design. They have, um, through throughout successive periods of, of autocratic rule, sort of disintegrated and dismantled other institutions. They have are also susceptible to the same issues that um, other political entities are. So some fracturing and some inability to reach compromise. You know, there have been many sort of intra- armed forces coups or struggles or disagreements. And we are sort of seeing more and more of that. Regardless of how this pans out, if people are genuinely interested in uh, a transition to civilian rule, they have to allow for the sort of non-linear ways in which the resistance committees have been pushing for this new politics to take shape. I think the, the tendency often is to look at the chaotic spiral of events and want to give some order to that through a process, through an agreement, through something that is tangible that people can buy into. But I think people need to start buying into a slightly less structured pathway if it is led by or if it is maintained by groups that actually uh, have the resilience and have the resolve to see that forward. That requires a whole new approach to this, particularly from the international community, that I think we're um, we're not seeing to the same extent yet. I should hope that we see more of this iterative approach, more of this sort of civic-led approach, less of this weddedness to structures that have been frankly, shown to not be that effective. Thank you, Kalud. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and I hope you join us for our next episode in two weeks. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Hawley-Nambi.